Device Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales. With ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great, this is Kevin Brown, your voice of Oreos, Double Stuff, and times of Lance Choco Lunch. Oh my gosh, those things are nasty. I hope you're having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I know I did. Today's an exciting show. We're going to continue our series on talking Freddish and find out what does Mr. Rogers' cardigan sweater have to tell us today about medical device and how can it help. We're going to take that 24-ounce cowboy ribeye I put on your plate last week, cut it up into some smaller chunks, and then we're going to end up with a great conversation with Aaron Hoffman, the CEO of Total Joint Orthopedics, TJO, out in Utah. It's going to be great stuff. So let's get into Mr. Rogers. I'm certain it's going to be awesome. In fact, that's the magic word, rephrase any element that suggests certainty. So you're thinking to yourself, that's kind of dumb. We walk around with a question mark over our head. No, that's not what that means at all. It speaks to humility. What is humility? I remember putting out on LinkedIn a little contest, and I had to send a t-shirt to Scott Sears for getting it right. Now, this is my humble opinion. I asked, what is the number one characteristic of people that are successful in medical device? And he got it. It's humility, because that word affects so many other things that if that's not the foundation of the building, then nothing else can really come into play. Humility means a modest or low view of one's own importance, and I added, or intellectual attainment. So let me carpet bomb you with quotes for a second, and then we'll clean up the wreckage afterwards. Socrates, the more I know, the more I realize I know nothing. Charles Darwin, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than knowledge. That's a good one. Here's an astronaut, Charles Hedfield. One of the most important lessons I've ever learned as an astronaut is to value the wisdom of humility as well as the sense of perspective it gives. And then there's this one, Mark Twain. It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Boy, that's really good. My personal favorite is Carrie Livgren from the band Kansas. Did I claim to be a wise man? It surely means that I don't know. And that is from a really great song, Carry On My Wayward Son. So let's sum all those quotes up into something that's kind of cool. It's called the wisdom paradox. The more you learn, the more you are exposed to what you don't know. Now, this is not discouraging. This isn't overwhelming. This should be life-changing. The wisdom paradox means that ideally... We should take all that and go, you know what? I need to ask more questions because I know that there's a lot that I don't know. I should rephrase a lot of the elements that suggest certainty in my life because you know what? I don't know everything. Uh, It affects how we make suggestions in the OR. Do you tell a surgeon to do something that's not specifically on the surgical technique, like I'm sure that this is going to work? Or do you phrase it as, I have seen others do this, right? Because you're not sure if it's going to work. And the moment you speak in certainty like this, trouble can be right around the corner. It means that we listen more intently to other people. I might learn something from them that I don't know. We realize that any and everyone can be a teacher to us. The more you learn, 
the more you are exposed to what you don't know. So how does that apply to medical device? We talked last week about the tripod. It's just a cutesy word. It's just basically, it's it, this, this business is like a three-legged chair. The, the three primary components of that chair are technical, the sales aspect, and the relationship aspect goofy story there was a girl in my dorm at college and and you know we're just talking about people that know everything she was clearly on some drug of some sort and she was scrawling a bunch of nonsense on a mirror and then she turned around and looked at us and she said i've got it and we're all like what she said i have the answer to every problem in the entire world and of course we're all going wow you know maybe this hallucinogenic thing that she's on has truly opened up her mind and expanded her thinking and she's got it she, so, we, so we said, what is it? And then that look of epiphany just as quickly evaporated off her face, and it was replaced with horror. And she said, I forgot. And I've laughed about that ever since, because just think for a second, pretend that she actually had the answer to it all, and then promptly forgot it. Can you imagine carrying that around with you the rest of your life? So, you know, we don't have, I don't have the answer to everything. I don't claim to. And how does grasping that and actually walking that out affect us? And let's just look at the technical aspect of this job. Well, it certainly affects how I order and it should affect how you order things. You just get burned one time. And I have seen this happen when everybody associated with a case thought that a knee was a certain knee, and inventory was brought in for a routine poly swap. Yeah, routine, right? And got in there only to find out that's not what it was at all. And that delaminated surface had to be put right back in. It was just a horrifying moment for everyone involved. And that stuff humbles you. The moment you say this is just another routine total knee, then trouble is right around the corner. The the moment you say, okay, I've looked at the x-ray and I know what this is and you just walk in there with just that then that's you don't know what you don't know if you grasp that then you'll look at an x-ray and this is where I'm at now okay I know that is such and such a stem and I know it's a 1214 taper but you know what that point zero 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 one percent that might be wrong in this particular situation I'm gonna have six degree heads just to cover my rear end uh, I talked with a Depew rep the other day, and we were just having a great discussion about the history of the AML. And this rep was saying, you know, I bring in every single one of those AML heads now just so I don't get in trouble. And I thought, that's wisdom. Know what you don't know. Don't ever look at anything and say, I got this, because that's the opposite of what we're talking about. That's the fallacy of youth in this business, uh, that you have it technically at the beginning of your career. And I've been there young full of myself, thinking I had a grasp over something I had not a grasp over, and I really had not learned enough to know that I didn't know. And then the end of the career, it's just as dangerous. You can rely on your knowledge that you've gained up all these, these years and get lazy, get complacent, think you don't need to learn anything more, and think you can phone it in. Trouble's right around the corner for you, too. Humility says, I don't know, and I need to ask more questions and listen more intently and continue to work hard because there's so much that I don't know. And there is no possible way to grasp 100% of all the technical demands of this business. No way. How does this affect my sales presentations? How does knowing what I don't know? Well, you know what? It just 
I said it keeps me studying on the technical. Well, it keeps me listening on the sales part. You know, a lot of times that we think we know something and we think we know this customer and we basically know everything we need to know, it keeps us from listening. So while your customer's telling you something, uh, you're just thinking of what to say next. You're not really even listening to what they're saying because you don't think you need to listen. You've got your shtick and you're going to deliver it come hell or high water. Humility says, I need to ask questions. And I need to ask questions because as Emmy Brown said last week, that sale is made before you ever made the presentation because you asked questions. You were very aware of what you didn't know, and then you made it your point to know it. And then that gets factored into your ultimate presentation, armed with all the correct information, right? So that's how it affects the selling angle. Lastly, the relationship side. The more I know, the more I realize I know nothing. This is a life changer for me. This is an absolute life changer. And you know what? This is a recent life changer to me. I was having breakfast with a gentleman the other day, an elderly neighbor who lost his wife of 60 years. And I just started asking him questions the other day about his life. And he was telling me about a man he met recently. And uh, the man was telling him about when he was a high school student, he came home and his father was abusing his wife. And it had been known that there was some physical abuse going on, but this time he caught him in the act. He did not respond to his words, so he went into a closet, got a gun, and shot his dad, killed him. And he turned to my friend, and he said, you know what? I've been carrying that around with me my whole life. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a story. You know, that has been ringing in my head for a while now because it is so profound it strikes to what we're talking about on the relationship side of this job it talks to the uh, the humility that we're talking about is that you know when we see people uh, and, and medical device proximity plus time we're getting close to people right and people are like porcupines they get closer together they start sticking each other right and it brings a lot out of people and sometimes it's not good i remember a nurse who made it her personal mission to make my life miserable. And this went on for months. And I kept thinking, what am I doing wrong? And I'm willing to listen. I mean, if I was doing something wrong, I would have apologized and made the change. But I wasn't doing anything wrong. She was just being difficult. And I just had to grin and bear it and get through that six months. It wasn't until later that I found out that she was going through a nasty divorce. Absolutely nasty. And here I was, the first guy that she saw in the morning, and I just became the battering ram for it. So I didn't know. There was something in that relationship that I didn't know. Everyone has a story. And her story, which was unknown to me, was resulting in her behavior that was directed at me. So what's the takeaway from that? This is just huge. I think it is. Is that, you know, can we be the bigger person can we be patient with people knowing that we truly do not know everybody's story? We can't know that. And when the symptoms of their story come to the front and we're get, we get caught up in it, and sometimes it's directed at us, can we just live with the fact that, you know what, maybe this person has a story too, and I'm not going to go there and return back in their lap what they're dishing out to me. And you know this happens. I see nurses doing this to each other in the break room. One nurse is acting a certain way, and then everybody piles on, and then I've heard a rep chime in. Yeah, they're like that to me too. Well, you know what? Don't do a swan dive into that quicksand. You, might, you may find yourself unable to ever extricate yourself from it. 
Always remember you're a guest in the hospital, and what you say about other employees in that hospital has a funny way of finding its way to them sometimes. So if you take the low road, stay humble, know what you don't know, especially when it comes to people and their circumstances, then you never get in trouble for that. Support everyone in every given situation, no matter how nasty they can be sometimes. Profound stuff, right? But you know what? It's good. It's really good. It's going to help us. It's helped me just just thinking about and processing all this stuff. I want to close this up to kind of capsule summarize everything, the quote that I blew through at the beginning, because I think it requires a little bit more attention, because it's really good. Charles Darwin saying that ignorance more frequently begets confidence than knowledge. You know, at first blush, you're like, okay, what does that mean? You know, ignorance breeds confidence more than knowledge? That makes no sense. Well, it makes absolute sense if you think about it. When I walk into the OR now, older and wiser and confident in what I don't know, uh, I'm confident in what I do know, but I'm equally confident in what I don't know. And that means that it's a stress-free thing for me. I'm still humble enough to know I need to gather knowledge, but I'm not going to get caught in the OR with being asked a question and I don't know the answer to it, and feel pressure that I have to say something or make something up because, God forbid, somebody uh, think that I don't know everything, right? And that's when that false confidence gets you in trouble. And I've seen this with young reps. They get in the OR, they feel like they know it all, they get asked a question, and they can't let it slide that they don't know So then they just make something up. I saw a competitive rep lose all of his business in account, telling a surgeon in a routine, there's that word again, right? That routine swap. Oh, sure, you can use X with Y. That'll be fine. Two weeks later, the surgeon finds out, well, no, you can't do X with Y. And now that patient is already out of the hospital. And now that doctor has to go tell the patient this. It did not end well. It was pretty, pretty ugly. But you know, that's the kind of mischief that finds us when we feel like we have to know it all or that somehow we do know it all. Um, Then we make poor decisions. We need to be confident in what we don't know and to be humble, to be humble, always asking questions, always second-guessing ourselves uh, because that's what ultimately is going to serve our customers and our patients the best. I was served quite a bit asking questions of our next guest. Uh, I've known her for a long time and it's just been so fun to see success that has followed her uh, going from working in the marketing side with our company and now onward to being a CEO of a joint company. That's just, uh, that's awesome stuff to see. So please welcome to the show, Miss Erin Hoffman. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to be here. Aaron, I've been following your career for a long time. I just wanted to just take a walk down the path of your life and growing up in the household of uh, your father, uh, Dr. Aaron Hoffman, one of the uh, the legends in the joint reconstruction space. You know, what was it like growing up in that environment? And uh, did that lead you down the orthopedic road and, and just kind of that that pathway at the beginning and then kind of work our way up to the the present and and what you're doing now. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think my background is certainly a little bit unique. Um, Having grown up around orthopedics and, you know, our family vacations were always centered around, you know, an orthopedic meeting here or there. Um, So I've tried 
I've tried really hard to stay out of orthopedics for most of my life. And um, I was talking to someone the other day and she said, you know, the thing about orthopedics is that it's so addictive and it really is this incredible section of a medical, of the medical industry um, with just amazing people and um, challenges and innovations. And it's just, it's easy to keep getting drawn into. So while I did not set out growing up um, to get into orthopedics, um, I just keep getting called back to it. So uh, you went to college and then you came out and then uh, which, which direction? Yeah. So I started um, out of college. I started working for Center Pulse, uh, which was then acquired by Zimmer and getting to work there through that merger was incredible because I got to see um, the, the smaller side of, of the company. And then I got to see the larger side with Zimmer obviously coming in and um, just how the companies work together. And I think um, the direction that Zimmer took with, you know, trying to put the companies together as best they could. I think, I think the leadership there was quite strong. And, and so it was great to be able to see that. And then I ended up working out of Charlotte, actually, for Zimmer Carolinas, but traveling all over North and South Carolina, um, doing a lot of marketing, medical education, computer navigation, which is where we met. Uh, and then I went to business school. And after business school at Vanderbilt in Nashville, um, we started Total Joint Orthopedics. So what was the impetus for that? I believe uh, Dr. Larry Dore was involved in that conversation? He was. So uh, my dad and Dr. Dore both were heavily involved with Operation Lock. Uh, Dr. Dore is obviously the founder of Operation Lock. And then my dad is the chairman of, Orth of Operation Lock Utah. So having that experience and seeing the difficulty in getting implants over the years, um, I think a lot of the big companies are so good about donating through various programs. Um, but it, it can be inconsistent sometimes depending on what's available, um, how many trips a year there are from the various chapters, because right now I think there are close to 20 chapters internationally. Um, so when you go on Operation Walk, it's like a MASH unit. You pick up, you literally pick up a hospital unit and take it uh, to wherever you're going to help people, whether that's Central America, Africa, Asia, um, Europe. And so there are so many things to be learned from that um, because you, you have to take everything you need. And at the same time, you have to be efficient about it because you're paying to ship everything or hand carry it, but you don't have a backup. Um, you know, if you say, well, we'll just scale down these trays, we've got, you know, 20 trays in the back room. You don't have that like you have, um, you know, in a large hospital center in the U.S. So you have to be very careful about what you pack, what you take, um, how you forecast. And when you look at orthopedics with a global vision, that really applies to Europe, to New York City. Um, you know, how do you how do you take in a giant SUV of trays and implants and everything you need when parking is $50 a day, or if you're in Europe, maybe you take a train to work. And so right. um, the opportunity arose for us to start this organization as something that offered an innate efficiency to orthopedics um, in the U S in Europe and beyond um, with this eye on giving back as well. So, um, what we've done is holistically designed 
implants and instrumentation to be efficient, to be in fewer trays um, without sacrificing anything that you need, um, you know, to have an ideal surgery. And so we wanted to look at this from the standpoint of making everyone's life easier from SPD to the OR staff, to the surgeon, to the patient who needs an exceptional outcome from state-of-the-art implants. So tell me about the Operation Walk program. Were you involved with uh, going overseas on some of these uh, these mission trips? Yes, I have been on, uh, I believe, eight now. Um, I've traveled with oh. Utah, um, Canada, Los Angeles, and then unfortunately, um, I was supposed to travel to Cuba with Opwak, Virginia this spring, and that was canceled. But it's such an incredible experience. And for me, I think, and you, you might feel this too, when you go in and you cover a case or you're part of the surgery, you get to see the surgery and you get to see the choreography of the OR staff and the surgeon working together. And that part is amazing. But the most you usually see of the patient is, you know, a draped limb, right? Um, and so one of the things that I really love about Operation Walk is you get you get the whole picture. And I know surgeons, I'm sure, feel this every single time they operate. They get to hear from their patients, they get to meet their patients, and they get to see the impact that they have um, and how a joint replacement changes that person's life. Um, so for me, that's my favorite part about Operation Walk is you get to see the before and after, and you get to see how, um, you know, the patient is is not just a number on a chart. It's someone whose life is being forever changed. Um, and so I love I love that part of it. Any uh, bullet point memories of you know patient situation or a, uh, just a trip that happened that really sticks out in your mind? Uh, any of that? Um, I think oh, there's so many. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, I could just talk for hours, but I think. Um, probably the very first case that we did with TJO implants was down in El Salvador. And it was a gentleman who, uh, he was 33 years old. And I still remember, I can see his face. I still, you know, remember his age, his name, everything. And um, he had, you know, through a congenital deformity, had two fused hips at 33. And so he lived with his family um, was not able to work. His family had to tip him in and out of bed every night. He couldn't tie his shoes or dress himself. Um, and so his his body was fused in a straight line. And he came in and he had bilateral hip replacements by Dr. Dorr. And to be able to be there and see him sit up for the first time and take steps with a walker, um, but to be able to hinge, essentially, for the first time in probably 33 years was unbelievable. And of course, you know, he cried, I cried, we all cried. <laughs> um, and I, you know, those stories are not isolated. So it's, it's just incredible to be able to see, um, see the impact that joint replacement has, because it's not just an elective surgery, you know, that people have so that they can, you know, ski longer, but, um, you know, it's something that affects your ability to live a happy and healthy life. Does Operation Walk have a, have its own dedicated website? It does. Yeah. Okay. So um, operationwalk.org 
Um, and from there, you can visit the individual chapters. As I mentioned, there are chapters across the U.S. I think there are three Canadian chapters now, uh, one in Ireland. Um, there is WOGA, which is the Women's Global Orthopedic Outreach. Um, so it's, it's really fun to follow along on all the organizations and the good that they're doing. So take me back to Center Pulse for a minute. I thought that company had the coolest stuff. Uh, so innovative. The natural hip was just awesome. And the natural knee, I, I could spend hours just talking about that. Just really amazing stuff coming out of that outfit. Tell me a little bit what it was like being around that organization at that time. Yeah, I think for me, that's still such an ideal. Um, I mean, it was my first job out of college and my first job at a a fairly large company. So, um, you know, at that point, I didn't have really anything to compare to, but I just think that the dedication and the family feel of that company was unmatched. And so I still have great friends from those days now, uh, and it's really fun to get us all together. Um, but one of the things that, um, you know, I think it started at the, at the top with David Floyd was the CEO when I was there and just down to our, you know, Thursday night happy hours where you'd have everyone there from the CEO to the guys, you know, in the warehouse or the manufacturing floor. And I just think there was this incredible camaraderie that really allowed that innovation and that success to happen. I can't wait to talk to your father about some of that stuff. Uh, I mean, that was just some real seminal things coming out of that organization, things like a tibial cutter design, right? Just mm -hmm. really interesting things that, that changed what everybody was doing at the time. And you can see echoes of a lot of what was going on in, in the instruments today. And, and especially the new, the newfound <laughs> discussion on porous knees, which was not such a new discussion back then, was it? No, definitely not have any thoughts on on uh, porous knees making a resurgence yeah I think that's um I think it's definitely growing quite a bit um and the AUKUS you know data shows that um I think it's a great option and you know we have surgeons who use both a cementless and a cemented knee um I think it can save a little bit of time in the OR and uh Dr. Menegini gives a great talk about the evolution of porous knees and, you know, why historically some of the designs failed and, and why the newer designs are, are better. So really the success is based on the design, the porous coating, um, and your surgical technique. And I think when you've got those things down, it is a really great option for a younger patient. But of course, I'm not a surgeon, so... But, you know, it seems like it's a really great option for some of the younger patients. I, I love the energy right now in the ortho space. It reminds me of uh, just where Spine's been at for a little while. A lot of small companies mm -hmm. doing some very innovative things. And I think that's good. I think a rising tide floats all ships. And, uh, you know, Center Pulse was that small company uh, just coming up with very uh, creative solutions. And uh, here we are. A lot of small companies in this space. Um, you know, we all we all thought years ago it's going to be just three or four, and that's it. Mm -hmm. But that's not what's happened at all. So, what are you um, again thinking about the future? Where do you see the future for small companies in the joint reconstruction space? Do you see it continuing to expand? I think so. Um, 
you know, it's fun to see a lot of um, these companies such as ourselves starting up and, and really focusing on, you know, different products and different technologies. So you have some younger implant companies, you have the tech companies such as IntelliJoint and OrthoLine, um, just really focusing on what they bring to the table. And so I think I 100% agree with you that, you know, rising tide floats all ships. And so I think all the competition makes us all better, whether big, small, um, you know, new technology. I think we're all going great places in orthopedics. And, you know, I'm excited to see what robotics brings to the field and, and how that evolves as it's improved in the coming years. Of all the years that you've spent in this space, you've been around reps, you've seen good reps, you've seen reps maybe not as good. And what what are some of the things that, that you you think distinguish the the rock stars from the the people that are good but but not a rock star what what are those components um i think it's an attention to detail really and treating every case as the first so we just had a a surgeon get started with us and he said you know i'm not worried about the first case i know i know everything will be there i know everything will go perfectly for the first case i'm worried about the 100th case and so i think you know, you get people where, you know, you you have that heart in your throat mentality for the first few. And, you know, do you get comfortable? Is it, oh, it's probably fine if that, if that instrument's not here, even though it's, you know, Dr. Smith's favorite. We'll just do without it today. So I really think that complacency um, is where I've seen, you know, reps fail a bit. And I think that what establishes someone as an exceptional rep is, you know, do you have that attention to detail? Is everything there every time? Are you early? You know, do you, you should beat the surgeon to the OR in the morning. Um, No one should be waiting for you. So just things like that and being able to think ahead and think proactively about, you know, what else is going on in the room? How do I make, how do I make things go better for everyone? Um, as the surgery goes on. And so being able to anticipate needs, um, you know, if your surgeon is constantly asking for the sizing that was templated, you know, write it on a piece of paper and stick it to the wall in 50 point font, um, you know, so that everyone can see it. Just noticing those little things and noticing where the sticking points are in the surgery and finding ways to help that go more smoothly. And then I think you make yourself indispensable. I love that 100th case uh, metaphor, so to speak. That's, that's really uh, something I'm going to put in my, my scrapbook. I saw a rep who was a senior consultant and had worked in a territory for many, many, many years. And he had that exact thing that you just described happen. There was something not on the tray and he told the tech, oh, Dr. So-and-so will be fine without it. And the surgeon mm-hmm. found out that he said that. And, you know, at the end of the day, he ended up getting kicked out of the entire system for that. You know, and it was now, of course, there was other things that were kind of orbiting around that. But that was the event that set the whole house of cards into motion. So only the paranoid survive. Yep, absolutely. And the other thing, um, one quote I've always loved is, 
beware of how people treat those who can do nothing for them. And so I, I love that quote because, you know, if you walk into the hospital and think, oh, that person's just a whatever that person's role is, an administrator or, um, you know, an orderly, you don't, you don't know who anyone is. And um, people notice that, you know, we have one surgeon and whenever I've gone to visit him, he always um, wants to take me on a tour of the hospital and introduce me to everyone. And he knows every single person in the hospital from the security guard and how many kids he had and, you know, how's your wife doing? And I just think that though that type of person stands out, someone who truly cares about others. And that's what your role is in the hospital. It's customer service. And, you know, I think people who just naturally care about others and are interested in, in building those relationships beyond just the surgeon, um, I think those people are very successful. I think a, a real defining moment for me in my career was a surgeon that I worked with. I always used to see him in the hall talking with one of the volunteers, and this gentleman had a learning disability. And I knew that, uh, that this doctor was very busy and should have been sprinting down the hall to the next thing. But he would always stop to talk to that gentleman mm-hmm. and ask him how his day was. And, and I thought, that is just awesome. And uh, we can get a little myopic sometimes, a little tunnel vision and focus on the decision maker and miss all those people in the middle there that are, uh, that are just as important and are just as worthy of our time. And that, that really changed my game, uh, that, that everybody in that hospital was important, uh, even the volunteers and, and all those people that have nothing to do with the decision on what implant gets used, right? Yeah. Absolutely. That's, that's, uh, that's very good stuff. Very yeah. good stuff. And it just makes your day better when you stop to smile or say hi to someone. I mean, being around surgery is high enough stress as it is. Um, you know, if you, if you take a minute to acknowledge the humanity around you, I think that really helps. I agree. I think you can make people's day sometimes just asking them questions because people like to talk about themselves and what's interesting to them. And it, there seems to be a real dearth of of people that will do that. You know, everybody's in their own world. And when you go up to somebody that normally doesn't get any attention, you know, they're not the surgeon, they're not the ortho coordinator, they're not this or that. They're just, maybe they're a scrub tech in another discipline, or maybe they're somebody in the receiving area or whatever. And you just get into their world. It's, it's amazing how many times they just light up that somebody is getting into my world and uh, I just walk away from those conversations just very enthused and, and excited that I, in some small way, right, you made somebody's day a little better just by taking five minutes of your time, just like um, Dr. Armistead used to do, and not be running from one thing to the next, but just take a moment and let people know that, um, that you're actually interested in them and care about what's going on in their life. Yeah, Absolutely. So Aaron, one of the things that I've always respected about you is being a successful woman in what has been a historically male-dominated space. I mean, it was years before I ever saw my first female orthopod, and it was even more years after that that I began to see here and there 
a, a device rep um, in the ortho world that was a female. So uh, as the father of a daughter who's in this space, it's always exciting to see that. And I was just curious if you had any thoughts on that, of, of um, being in that world and the way it's structured now as a woman. Yeah, I think, you know, I've been around orthopedics my entire life. So, um, you know, it's just something that I know and I don't think about it a lot. I think it's definitely, it's definitely an issue. And I, I love, um, you know, the women in arthroplasty group as part of AUKUS has started a fantastic conversation over the last few years. And there are some great voices that are, are helping to establish mentorship, to get more women into orthopedics, whether it's as a surgeon um, or through industry, they've been incredibly supportive, I think, of, of getting industry involved and really just starting the conversation, which I think is a, a great place to, to begin. Um, you know, when I was in college, I had a lot of friends who were pre-med and um, as they applied to med school and, and went about their rotations, there is still a bit of a stigma about who an orthopedic surgeon is and to the point where, you know, people mock it as a stereotype. Um, and I think there are so many innovations and it is such an industry in this interesting field in medicine. Um, I really, I really like that we're having this discussion about how we can direct more people, um, more women, uh, more diversity into orthopedics because different kinds of different backgrounds and, and different perspectives really, and help, really help improve us all. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Aaron, I really appreciate having you on the show today and uh, just congratulations. I mean, you've done a great job over there and, and I wish you, uh, I wish you the best in the, the coming years. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. I love what Aaron said about that 100th case that that's what the surgeon was concerned about. And, you know, that needs to be our concern as well. And that's why we're talking about this stuff. That lack of certainty keeps me safe. Do I have everything I need for the case that the office sent in and I haven't checked it in yet? I'm uncertain, so I'm going to go check it out. The moment I think everything's going to be fine and let it slide, then that's when mischief finds itself upon me and my career. So just good stuff to think about this week, staying on guard, not being too comfortable, but being humble, stay low, don't think too highly of ourselves and what we know, and be very aware of what we don't know. Great stuff to take with us this week. I hope you all have an awesome week. I look forward to seeing you next week. I have some really exciting guests lined up. I can't talk about it because it's super secret, but trust me, it's going to be a lot of fun. So, Thank you so much for being a part of the show today. And as always, be smart, be safe, be strong, and most importantly, be safe. Device Nation.